Uh, we do have a longer passage this morning, and so um, I'm going to pray, and we're going to get right into it, and we're going to read a whole chapter of the Bible. So that's a fun thing. Let's pray. Father, this morning, uh, we ask that your word would be a lamp unto our feet, that it would be sweet like the honeycomb, that it would show us you, that as we read your word, we're not just reading disembodied stories, but we are reading the history of your people that reveals yourself to us, that we can come to your word and experience you. Help us to do that this morning through my reading and our listening. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so this is Daniel chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 29. This is God's word. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue nine feet tall, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. And so all the officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, "'People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command.' When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king! You issued a decree requiring all people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instrument. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon, they pay you no attention, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the burning furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, they said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that his face became distorted with rage, and he commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. 
And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers that they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, Didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their head was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than worship or serve any other god except their own god. Therefore I make this decree, if any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Good job, we made it through. Um, this is a long passage, but it's a good passage, and it's probably a familiar passage. Like, if this, if this story was a song, it would be considered one of the classics. You know, we, would, we do it in VBS, we teach about it in Sunday school, it shows up in Bible story time, there's a great VeggieTales episode about it with chocolate bunnies, it's a must-watch. But if you spend any time around church, um, you'll probably end up hearing this story taught this way. Um, it's a great story. It really is. It has everything that makes a good story good. It's got likable heroes, kind of the underdogs. It's got a villain who maybe turns out to be not so bad at the end. It's got this thing called the fiery furnace. So whoever came up with that deserves a raise, the fiery furnace. I don't think there's any better brand marketing than a fiery furnace. And so when we read these stories in the Old Testament, we like them because we understand them. Like, we know what's going on. We can see who the characters are. We see the details that end up happening. And we usually end up reading them with this kind of lens, this personal lens. It's almost like we take tracing paper, place it over the passage, and start to say, I'm kind of like Shadrach, or maybe I'm Abednego. We all kind of pick our character, and we play that role. But what can happen with this story is when we start to look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we say, here are three men who are full of faith. And we start to have crippling guilt because we say, man, my faith isn't like their faith. Yet my story isn't like their story. If I were faced with the choice of being thrown into a furnace and dying by fire or just bowing down to a God and like crossing my fingers and not meaning it, I don't know what I would choose. And so maybe what this passage is showing us, maybe what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are calling us to look at is not actually themselves, but something else, something better. And so this passage that we just read is all about faith. And I want to look at it in two ways with us this morning. How does our passage define faith? And then how does our passage apply faith? 
So that's our two points, faith defined and then faith, de- uh, faith applied. So first, what is faith defined? Well, if we're going to look at this story and try and put on the clothes or be the characters in the story, we really have to see that maybe we're not the person we think we are. In fact, when we look at this story to understand faith, to understand what's going on, the first person we really have to look at is King Nebuchadnezzar. Who is this wicked king that throws people into the furnace? Well, what we end up seeing is that Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon. Babylon is the nation that conquers Israel. They actually destroys Israel and ends up bringing God's people into exile. The practice of the day was when you take over a new region and a new land, you take on that land. It becomes yours now. And so you end up taking the kings and the wise people and the young men and you bring them back with you and you assimilate them into your culture. You train them up in the Babylonian way and then you send them back to expand your rule over your new kingdom. And so this is what happens. We know some of these people. We obviously know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, is another one of those people. So that's the situation. God's people are in exile. Babylon has taken over. There is no land. There is no hope. But when we look at King Nebuchadnezzar, this is what we see. We see a person who is totally and completely addicted to himself that he is addicted to himself. He cannot get enough of other people's approval. So much so that he desperately needs other people's approval that he builds this giant statue to his own ego. 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, made of gold. Like that thing would glisten in the sun. It would blind people. And he is so addicted to other people's approval that when just three people, look back at verse 13, that just three people not giving him the credit he thinks is due, he flies into a furious rage. Like, this is the most powerful man in the world at the time. And when three people don't give him what he thinks he deserves, he throws a temper tantrum like a child. He can't handle not having their approval. So who is this wicked king? What is he like? Well, he's desperate for other people's approval. And actually, he's got a lot of faith. You can't look at Nebuchadnezzar and say, that man doesn't have faith. His faith is actually in himself. His faith is in his ability to win over people's approval either by force or by popularity. And so he needs to be needed. He needs to be liked. He needs to be thought well of by everyone all of the time. There's a comedian, uh, Brian Regan, um, a couple years back, probably more than that now, but he has this, um, this kind of bit, this comedy bit called The Me Monster, uh, maybe you know somebody like this. But it's the person who, when you're at a dinner party, you try and tell a story, and they're like, oh, no, no, that's not nothing. Check this out. So you'll, you'll tell a story. You'll maybe foolishly say, yeah, I had my wisdom teeth out, and they pulled two of my teeth. And they go, whoa, 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 hold on. I had four teeth pulled out. And they just stop you, and they crush your story. It's all about them. Well, then you start to tell a story like, yeah, when I was a kid, I broke my leg, and it was kind of awkward. And he's like, whoa, whoa, stop that. No, no, no. When I was a kid, I broke both my arms. It was horrible. It was awful. Me. It's all about me. Or you'll maybe foolishly try and say, yeah, I've been kind of tired lately. No, 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 that ain't nothing. Check this out. I've had insomnia for seven months and I haven't slept. Me, me, me. It's all about them. It's a me monster. And so when we look at King Nebuchadnezzar, what we end up seeing is maybe not the mustache-twirling, underdeveloped villain that just wants to see everything go away. We actually end up seeing someone that looks a whole lot more like us. Think about it. 
how much approval from other people do you need to be happy? How do you take criticism? Like when your friends come to you and say, hey, maybe you don't see things the way you think you do. Does that devastate you? Does that remove your entire identity and all of a sudden you're crushed? Do you spend all of your time trying to get into the right friend groups or the right clubs or the right organizations in order to have the right people around you so that you can feel like the right person? How do you respond when people don't notice how hard you work? How do you respond when people don't give you the respect you think you are owed? What happens when someone who is more beautiful, more likable, has a better job, a better marriage, makes more money, and is more liked than you? What happens when that person shows up in your life? Can you handle that? Are you happy and rejoice for the good gifts God has given them, or does it crush you? And you just try and look for ways to cut that person down a few notches, to to humble them because they need it. Do you feel happy when that person messes up? You're like, finally, their life's not as good as it looks. Do you want to throw people into the furnace? Gossip, rumors, spreading lies about people because they aren't people to you. They're just threats. What King Nebuchadnezzar is showing us is what a life of slavery to people's approval actually looks like. That people end up just being a threat to you. And what is at the center of your story? What is it that you put your faith in? You put your faith in yourself. And so, King Nebuchadnezzar right now in this story is the king of basically the whole world. But God is the king of creation, and he's about to teach him a lesson through the lives of these three men. So what happens, the context that kind of builds up to this whole climactic story, is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are brought into Babylon, but they end up rising through the ranks, and they've been given a lot of power and authority and position. And so what we see, our passage calls them astronomers, and other translation they're called Chaldeans. Um, But they end up seeing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're jealous and they don't like it. These are outsiders that are having the jobs that they think they should have. And so when this new rule comes out, which is at the sound of the instruments, bow down to the statue, and they see Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego not following it, well, they just go to the king and say, hey, king, um, these guys over here, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. And so the king flies into this rage, and he ends up saying, I'm going to destroy you unless you bow down. I will give you one more chance. In verses 16 through 18, we see the response. And if you look at it, it's actually kind of fascinating. You see, they end up saying, if you throw us into the furnace, God will save us. And if it stopped right there, the way we define faith would be very different. If it stopped with, God will save us, we would say, wow, look at these three men. What courage, what conviction, see what they can do in the world. And we would make applications like, go be like them. This is what true faith is. Do this. But they don't stop there. They say, God will save us. And then they go on in verse 18 to say, but even if he doesn't, We want to make it clear to you, we will not worship you or your gods. This is true faith. They don't even think about themselves. 
They are so convinced with who God is and how he is supposed to act. They are so filled with God's grace that in this situation, they know it's not actually about them. Most of us have heard the story the other way. Most of us have heard the story that they believed so strongly and they believed so well that God kept them safe and he gave them what they wanted because of their faith. And we end up thinking that, man, if I just had faith like theirs, if I just had faith like these guys, life wouldn't be so hard. We end up walking away from a passage like this with guilt because we think their faith is something that they do. We think it's something that they do on their own. And so in our life, when things don't seem to start changing, when we're still stressed, when sin keeps getting the best of us, when we have no passion for God's Word, when we never feel like we want to pray, we start to think, if I only had better faith, we start to believe a lie, if I only trusted more, if I only loved Jesus better, life wouldn't be so bad. It wouldn't look like this. What I need is faith like theirs. I need to be better. There's a great scene in Star Wars The Force Awakens. You know, it's the first of the sequel trilogies. You know, early thousands, we had the Star Wars prequels. In the 70s and 80s, we had Star Wars. And then in 2015 on, we had the sequels. So the first movie of the sequels, Force Awakens, there's a scene where Han Solo, Chewbacca, and one of the new characters, Finn, are trying to infiltrate the Star Killer base. Are you tracking? Um, so they get there, and Han Solo looks at Finn, who's kind of the defector, and he goes, all right, what's the plan? What was your job when you worked here? And he goes, sanitation. And he just looks at him, and he goes, well, how are we going to turn off the shields? And he goes, I don't know. And he says this, the galaxy is counting on us. We have people counting on us. And Finn responds and goes, we'll figure it out. We'll use the force. And Han Solo looks at him and goes, that's not how the force works. And I think about that often because you could change that, the, the word the force to having faith and the scene would play out the exact same way. Like when life gets down and we've kind of cashed in every other chip, we start to think, all right, I don't know what else to do, so the answer is to have faith. And I can kind of just hear Han Solo in my head, that's not how faith works. You see, these three titans of faith, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we have to understand what they're doing. We have to understand how they utilize their faith, how it's actually defined. Because if you don't, it can be kind of confusing. They say, God will save us, but if he doesn't, are they kind of having it both ways? Like, what's actually happening in the passage? You see, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where is their faith? What is their faith about? It's not actually in how God is going to act. It's not actually in how the circumstances are going to change. They're actually okay, live or die. Their faith is actually in God. That is so important for how Christians understand faith. How to understand the way the Bible actually defines faith. You see, there's this story in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus' disciples are trying to cast out a demon and they can't do it. And so they bring this person to Jesus, and he casts out the demon instantly. I love the way that the Scripture records it. It says, privately, they went to Jesus later, and they said, hey, what happened? Why couldn't we do Just imagine the conversation. They go, so, um, Jesus, what happened over there? Is there, like, something else we need to learn? Is there another level to this whole disciple thing? And he just looks at him and goes, nope, you had little faith. That's why it didn't work. 
And they're like, what? what? And he goes on and he gives that classic story of if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, one of the smallest seeds on earth, if you have just that little amount of faith, you can move an entire mountain. So how does the Bible define faith? How does the Bible help us understand this thing we're all called to have? Is it moving mountains? Is it casting out demons? Is it looking death in the face and saying, I'm not scared? No, what the Bible ends up telling us about our faith is that it is always about the object. Our faith is always defined by its object, not our ability. See, we've actually missed it if we start to think faith is about quality or quantity. You know, it's not about how much faith we have. You know, do I have enough faith? It's not about how good is my faith? Is it the right quality? Do I have the right feelings? Am I sensing the right things? No, faith in the Bible is always defined by its object. You see, faith is not some kind of exchange. It's not some kind of way in which we think if I prayed more, if I spent more time in the Word, if I serve God better, I have better faith, and then God will rescue me from hardships. Um, Those are great things. Read your Bible, pray, serve more. All good things. But if we use that to measure our faith, we've missed the point. If we use those things to try and improve our quality or quantity of faith, we're not actually living in the way that God has called us to. It ends up turning God into some kind of cosmic vending machine. You see, Tim Keller describes it this way. If we think, okay, I've read my Bible today, I'm going to punch in my faith quarter, and then I can say, all right, I need a good grade on the test, B4, and then God spits it out. Or I tithed a lot this year, and so I want to be protected from sickness. All right, God, honor my faith, C8. Like, that actually ends up still living like King Nebuchadnezzar. Who's at the center of that story? What is your faith actually in? What's the object? Is it the creator of the universe, or is it how he acts? Is it what, is it, is it, what it does for me? Is it how it helps me? you end up acting like the king. God is the object of our faith through the person of Jesus, through his redemptive work. The Bible always defines faith as resting on and in the person of Jesus Christ. Saving faith is seeing that God in his great redemptive work has been faithful to his promises. If we treat faith like my ability, what I bring to the table, we've missed it. The problem is not quality. The problem is not quantity. It's always what is the object of your faith. Is it what I get or is it who God is? Am I resting and relying upon the grace of Jesus Christ in that? And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they demonstrate this perfectly. You see, it's not about them. It's not about how well they believed. It's not about what they do. What is at the center of their faith act, this story that we see here, is that they know who God is. God is absolutely able to save them within his power. But even if he doesn't, he's still good. Even if he doesn't, we will not change. What we get does not determine how we act does not determine where we rest our faith, does not show us the object of our faith. Who God is, that's what it is. And so why does Jesus say that the faith of a mustard seed can, move, can do something impossible to us, move a mountain? He's actually demonstrating that it does not matter about how much faith you have. 
It's all about the object. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know that God will do whatever is right and whatever is wise. That's the object of their faith. And they believe that so strongly. They know that so well. They place their faith in that, that their confidence is in God's power and wisdom, which means they really are okay if God does not give them the desires of their heart because they know that his desires are better. I mean, that's different, isn't it? Like, where is your faith? Because you see, suffering always reveals the object of our faith. If it's about us, we make it about us. If it's about God, we make it about God. When adversity comes, do you rest upon God in, through Jesus? Or are you just trying to strong arm your way through life because all you need is you? Is God a vending machine? Or is the Spirit working within you to move you away from faith in yourself to putting your faith in the real object, in the real thing that can actually save you. So that's faith defined. It's resting on God. It's seeing that the object of our faith is not our ability, but the person and work of Jesus, and it's the Heavenly Father who loves to save and redeem. So how does our passage actually apply faith? Well, if you look in verse 25, we see something amazing. In verse 25, King Nebuchadnezzar ends up saying, I see four men, unbound, unharmed, and one of them looks like a god. You see, the promise of God is that in faith, when you trust in him, it's not that things are never going to go wrong. In fact, it's probably the opposite. Christians are called to expect suffering, and we are called to expect things to go wrong in the broken world until Jesus returns. So the promise is when things do go wrong, We have God on our side. We have Emmanuel on our side. God is with us. And so when Nebuchadnezzar looks out and he says, I see four people and one of them looks like a God, I mean, he's close. Commentators and scholars all believe that what is going on here is a pre-incarnate Christ, that it is actually God through the Son in the fire. The same Jesus that appeared to Moses in the burning bush, the same Jesus that walked with Adam in the garden, that was with Abraham on the mountain and wrestled with Jacob, that God is in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's no coincidence that this pre-incarnate appearance of Christ happens in the midst of flame and fire and suffering and trial. It's meant to point us to why Jesus would come fully in the flesh. It's meant to show us that who is God? What happens when Jesus shows up? Nothing stops him. Nothing can keep him down, and he will save his people. So what happens when Jesus shows up? How does that apply? How does that help us apply our faith? It's seeing that we need to put our faith in the real object of Jesus, and God shows us himself through him that we are resting on Jesus' saving grace in all of life. So how do I do that today? What does that mean? How do I need Jesus today? When suffering comes, we need to see that Jesus, who brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fiery furnace, promises to bring us out of the fire of judgment. By grace, through what? Faith. 
You see, there's this great illustration. You know, we need, when Jesus shows up, we need someone who can relate to everyone at all times in all ways. That we can look to, and when we see the object of our faith appear, we see just a little bit of ourselves in him. And so there's this illustration that an author puts off. It says every type of person in the entire world across history is gathered into one room. And they start to say, we're going to pull a representative to represent everyone into this room. And so people start to kind of chime in, and one person goes, all right, well, he's got to be an outcast if he's going to represent me. And another one says, well, he has to be a political sufferer if he's going to represent me. And someone else says, well, he has to be racially oppressed if he's going to represent me. Wrongly accused, an orphan, had to grow up in poverty, had to have strife with his family, and had to be killed by an oppressive government. Well, in walks, <laughs> into the room walks Jesus, who all of those things are true of and so much more. The way we apply our faith is when suffering comes, when trials come, when life takes its toll, we look to a suffering Savior and see that He knows. We look at the real Jesus and see that He knows us. He knows everything. He can relate to us in every way. There is nothing that you can bring to Jesus and He's going to respond to you by saying, that's not that bad. Just buckle your chin strap and charge on through. You'll be fine. No, the object of our faith, the real Jesus, the real thing that can save us, he looks at us and says, I know. It's as bad as you think, and it's worse. And I fixed it by dying. And so, when we begin to suffer, when we need hope, when our faith needs to be put into something that can handle it, God promises to not leave us alone. He says, look at Calvary. There you will see the only person who is real enough, who is loving enough, who is strong enough, and knows us and loves us and will save us. Applying our faith is seeing that Jesus is enough. Going to him is faith that saves because he's enough. And when we see that, we can say, in the same way Nebuchadnezzar said, there is no other God who can rescue like this. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, this morning we hope to see that our faith is fulfilled and honored and carried out in our life because of who you are. That even our faith is secured and given to us through Jesus. That in our need and our longing we come to you and you are the one that satisfies, and you are the one that saves. Help us to come to you today, tomorrow, and for the rest of our lives until your return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.